You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. About a month ago, I was on a podcast called The Solari Report. Uh, it's hosted by Catherine Austin Fitz. She's the president of the Solari Inc. and publisher of the Solari Report and managing member of Solari Investments Advisory Services, LLC. A little bit about Catherine, who's our guest today. She's formerly a managing director and member of the board of directors of the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dylan Reed and Company, and federal housing commissioner at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in the first Bush administration. And she was also the president of Hamilton Securities Group prior to that. I'm really excited to continue our conversation and be the one asking the questions this time. Catherine, Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Chuck. It's really a privilege. You know, sometimes I feel when I talk with you as though all I can do is say, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very kind. I've been listening to more of your stuff since we chatted. I don't know as everybody in my audience here heard our interview we did on the Solari Report. I want you to, if you don't mind, talk a little bit about your time at HUD and particularly, maybe we can start with the conversation about affordable housing and specifically the project that you, uh, I want you to end with the anecdote about uh, helping out our friends. Oh, fees for our friends. Because I think that's a good jumping off point here. Yeah. Well, when I first got to the Department of Housing Urban Development, I was, uh, I spent the first month being lobbied by mortgage bankers, home builders, you know, various people interested in credit flowing into communities. And I developed a free-floating anxiety, and I couldn't, you know, I'm a very intuitive person. I, something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. And finally, what I realized was, if you look at how our financial system is currently organized, uh, everybody could get their stock to go up by doing something that increased production, whether it's of housing or consumer goods, but nobody could make money in the, or very few people could make money in the stock market by making communities more wonderful. And I said, you know, there's something really wrong. Everybody's looking at the Dow Jones index. And I came up with something called the popsicle index to express the well-being of a community. And, and I thought, well, you know, how can we rebalance the financial system so that we could have a positive relationship between the health of communities and the financial markets and financial investors and in equity. So I, I went to work and I found out that there were a couple of obstacles. One was, and I would say this is the biggest, is that the federal government money pouring into communities, and I should just step back and say, I look at America as sort of 3,100 counties. So if you look at our federal budget by county for 3,100 counties, what you discover is the government money has what I call a negative return on investment. And it's really funny. It's basically coming to very similar conclusions as you did, but using I'm using financial terms and you're using engineering terms. But people were putting money into stuff that made the economics worse, not better. And so the question was, okay, well, how do we turn that around? And so the first thing I discovered was you had an infinite number of constituencies uh, who who were – 
financially dependent on the current model. And uh, that, that was number one. Number two was that there was very little transparency about the government money work. So you and I can go to the White House budget and we can um, download lots of information that shows us how the money works everywhere, but there's no what I would call actionable intelligence because we can't see what's going on in our neighborhood. So I decided, you know, I've had it with this. When I left HUD, I started an investment bank and I said, I'm just going to take my own business money, the money, the profits my company is generating, and I'm going to build a software tool that will allow us to take all the publicly available data from the federal government by agency, by program, from OMB, download it into, you know, relational databases had come along. So suddenly this was possible. And I'm going to look at how the money works by neighborhood so that we can get actionable intelligence. And one of the things that happened, we got hired back on competitive bid to the department to be their financial advisor and uh, advise on about $12 billion of loan sales. We did about 10. And, um, and when, when we got hired back, it gave me an opportunity to download and look at all the mortgage data. HUD is the richest depository of mortgage data on the United States, in the United States. And we downloaded it all and we started to look at it by neighborhood. And what I discovered was that we were, that HUD was spending $250,000 per unit to build or rehab public housing in neighborhoods where 50000 could buy and rehab a single family property in the FHA foreclosed property. And if you look at optimizing the housing stock um, and credit and mortgages that the federal government owned by place, not just FHA, but VA, Farmer's Home, uh, uh, Fannie, Freddie, you know, if you looked across the board of everything the taxpayer was paying for by housing, but you looked at it by place, there was enormous opportunity to improve the economics. Um, you know, why spend, uh, why spend $250,000 to create one unit of housing when you can, you know, you can move line item and create four or five. So I'm an optimizer and I very much wanted to, you know, sort of optimize the budget. So uh, the story that you mentioned was I went to the assistant who of the person who ran the program that was doing the 250,000. And I said, look, look at these numbers, you know, look at in Chicago, New Orleans, all these different places you know, if we just re-optimized the money to get the best local results for the place, we could generate four or five times the amount of housing as now, and, and the total numbers were profound. And she turned bright red, got really angry and said, but how would we generate fees for our friends? Yeah. yeah. I just want to let that hang there for a second. Because <laughs> it's... <laughs> It, it is such a profound statement, yeah, and it resonated with what me. What you're saying is, I want children to be homeless so our friends can get fees. Now, I just have to step back and bring up a new factoid that I didn't have when I spoke to you last. I don't know if you you saw this. It just was published this week. John Stanton, who I'm a great admirer of, who's got something called the Stanton Foundation, uh, said, look, the Gates Foundation is publishing all these great global healthcare statistics, but if we're going to be in integrity, we need to look at our own backyard. And he funded $300,000 to do an analysis of, of health data within just the immediate Seattle area. 
And what it shows is the life expectancy spread between the wealthy neighborhoods and the, and the poor neighborhoods was 14 to 19 years. Now that's what I call actionable intelligence. And what I will tell you is if we build a software tool that the federal government seized and destroyed, but if you, if you had community wizard or a tool like that and you overlaid it, what you would see is there's a direct correlation between the amount of subsidy that the federal government is pouring in and life expectancy. And that subsidy is inverse or directly? Um, both. Yeah. Both. So, yeah. so uh, you know, it's a very complex equation when you get down to seeing how it all works. So, for example, one of the big subsidies is quantitative easing. And and trying to bring that down on a place-based basis is a very complex thing. Now, of course, you can pro forma for the population how much per person. But, you know, so so it can get very complex when you get out of concept very fast. But, you know, the reality is it's incredibly important to look at our government investment by place and at a, at a level where a neighborhood can take action. But more importantly, I think it's really important if, if you're as interested as you and I are on turning the government investment into a positive return on investment, because that's really what we need to do. We have to grapple with how can we make sure all of our friends generate fees based on performance. The problem is right now they're, they're generating fees, but it's not based on a metric that, that improves the economy. And that's what we want. We want our places to be wonderful. And so part of that is setting up, whether it's a governmental process or a private sector process, that says we're going to allocate capital according to performance as opposed to privilege. I wanted to drill down on that, the friends thing. And the notion that you were, you know, as a newcomer, deeply lobbied in advance. My days doing engineering work, I was on the other side of that, where we you know, had really good, compelling narratives as to why the money should continue to flow essentially to us because, you know, we were taking care of these cities, building these engineering projects. How does this come about? I mean, I'm assuming that these are not, you know, evil, self-centered, greedy people. What is the mechanism that happens, do you think, that gets us to a point where the fees for our friends becomes a real narrative that we're concerned about? This is a complex phenomena, but let's just dive into one example. Let's take a community 30 years ago, and let's say that community has a 100 small businesses making a million dollars in revenues each at a 10% profit margin. Uh, so you have 100 million revenues in the, in the town and 10 million of profits, and all the equity is owned locally or regionally. And so if these are all private businesses, they're not publicly traded. And if we were going to appraise them and, and buy them, if somebody's going to come in and buy the local dry cleaners, let's just say uh, that they're, that they're trading at a multiple of five times earnings. So we would value their business. If they're each making a million dollars, we would value their business at five million. And so, uh, you know, so the total equity value, business equity value in the place is 50 million. Okay, so I'm a senator, and I'm a senator from that state. And let's say I'm real close to the chairman of a company, and that company, let's say it's a restaurant franchise. That company's stock is trading at 10 to 20 times earnings. 
and let's say of those 100 businesses, 10 are restaurants. And so they've got a million dollars of, so 10 restaurants, let's see, we've yeah, got a market cap, right? Right. So, so basically what I can say, so, so let's say of that 50 million of equity, uh, 10 million of it is restaurants. If I can get that 10 million moved over to these, to this publicly traded company, you know, their value goes, it doubles or triples. Right. Because instead of five times earnings, you're not 10 times earnings. Right. Basically, if I can engineer rules and regulations, zoning, all sorts of state, local, and federal stuff, and get those revenues and that income flowing through a high uh, PE company, then that company can afford to fund my political campaign. Wow. Right. Now, it gets even better. So so let's look at these small companies. Let's go back to our 100 small businesses all of them are required by law to uh, or, or encouraged by law to put a percentage of their earnings in 401ks and IRAs for their employees. So the employees are doing IRAs, they're doing 401ks or defined benefit plan. So they take a portion of their profits, they put it into those vehicles uh, or they pay taxes and then the local uh, municipality uh you know, puts a portion of that money, that tax money into pension funds. So, so between the private retirement and the public retirement, uh, those businesses are funding a whole series of different retirement funds directly or indirectly that are then required by law to only put their uh, investments into the 10 to 20 multiple companies who are then going to come in and take over their business. Thus generating more cash for that part of the economy. Yeah. So my profits are financing a machine that's destroying me. Let me tell you a, a story. And then I would like you to give me your reaction to it. Because I, I suspect, again, we'll be very similar, but with different backgrounds and understandings. We don't have Dunkin' Donuts here in Minnesota until two years ago. And when Dunkin' Donuts came to the state, they said, we're going to open 50 franchises in Minnesota. And if you want to be an owner of one of these franchises, here's what you need to have. Now, before I tell you what you need to have, note, there's no simpler business than a donut shop. If, if you're a local young kid who wants to get started in something, you're not maybe not going to go to college, or maybe you got done with college and a business degree and you want... You, you need a deep fryer, a counter, and a cash register. I mean, really, like it's it's that simple. Uh, this is a pretty low capital type of thing. And w when we think about people bootstrapping themselves and getting th something started and starting with nothing and building up to something, to me, like a donut shop is a pretty easy easy start. In order to start a Dunkin' Donuts, you to get a franchise, you need a half million dollars of net worth. And half of that, so quarter million dollars, has to be liquid net worth, so cash sitting around. I looked at that and I said, why would anybody start a donut shop? Why would anyone in their right mind go out and, in, you know, take on their own risk of starting, you know, Catherine and Chuck's donut shop? Why would you ever do that? Because as soon as Dunkin' Donuts comes to town, they're going to get the tax increment financing subsidies. They're going to get, you know, all, all the stuff that the local government do to get them in. They're going to be on the federally subsidized frontage road and, and you're just going to get wiped out. Tell me the financial, the other side of that. What, what am I either missing or not grasping or what, what else is there? Okay. So, so here's the other side of that. At, when I left the, uh, serving as assistant secretary of housing, I started Hamilton Securities Group 
And basically, having looked at this exact phenomena, I said, look, now with the internet, you can get, you can create a venture pool for a community. So I'm a big believer in A-share, B-share plans. Uh, so you, you create a, a governance structure of the local leadership. Okay, so this is just like the Harvard Endowment or the Yale Endowment does it. You have a private corporation. It's a self-perpetuating board. So let's say we we choose 12 people from the local, you know, knowledgeable about the local economy and, and active in it to be our A shareholders. And um, and they earn, they put money in for the B shares. So the money's in the B shares, the non-voting shares. And then they have voting shares because we want strategic leadership. We, we're not just trying to make money. We're trying to make our place wonderful. So we need people who can think long-term and strategically. Um, so they put money in for B shares and then they turn around and do a community offering. Okay. And, and so everybody in that county or that community, however you define that your area can invest stock because one of the problems with Dunkin' Donuts is when everybody shops at Dunkin' Donuts and buys Donuts at Dunkin' Donuts, their equity doesn't go up. They're, na- they're not getting a piece of the action of the equity on their own purchases. So now we sell stock and then we turn around, uh, we work with the local banks because the local banks are very helpful and important in this. We work with the local banks and, and, and help the small businesses get the kind of equity capital they need to get better at their business of the business. You know, a business is three things. It's the business, it's the business of the business, and then it's financing the business. Generally, small business is better at the business. They're not as good at the business of the business, which is CPAs and systems and lobbyists. And But if we as a neighborhood aggregate and, and share business of the business – you know, like the CFO or CPA functions, we can be as smart as the smartest guys in the world. Um, not only that, we can solve the number one economic drain on most communities, and that is all the talent is, you know, we're paying to raise and educate the talent, and then the talent leaves and goes off to the big cities, and we don't get the benefit of those young people coming in, taking over and leading the businesses. And so we can create an options program that makes sure that we have as deep a bench as the top corporations for our place and our businesses. Okay. So now let's say we created an exchange where everybody who owns the stock can trade it if they want. And let's say the stock is trading at $10. What happens if we do a series of things that cause the popsicle index in our neighborhood to go up? Yeah. You're going to stock goes stock up. Goes right. up. Right. right. Stock goes up. Um, what are we, what's going to happen if we do things to, you know, reduce the environmental pollution in our neighborhood? Stock goes up. What's going to happen if we bring a new energy technology that radically reduces the cost of energy? Stock goes up. And so now what we've got is we've got the consumer, the business person, and the community all in the business of making our place more wonderful because it makes them all money together. So right now you'll see very ruthless competition between small business and a place. But frankly, if I'm in a venture pool with you and you do better, you lower my cost of capital. So I have a vested personal greedy interest in helping you do better. One of the powerful things about it is you create an intelligence system 
where the consumer in that place has a reason. You know, they're a shareholder. So they march in and say, hey, you know, 30 miles down the road, Walmart's doing this, and you're you're not paying attention. You need to get with the program because I don't want Walmart to get all the business because, you know, I own shares. <laughs> so you've got you've now got an intelligent network trying to help you make money. My solution to this has been to look back at the way cities were built a hundred years ago and try to understand the economics. It seems like what you're describing is basically a modernized version of a local economic ecosystem. You know, people invested in the local bank and the local bank had boards of directors. And is it essentially that? Yeah, because basically you had an ecosystem that was cycling intellectual equity. So the intellectual capital and the financial capital were cycling around the economy in a system where, you know, people did better by improving the productivity of intellectual and financial capital. So let me give you one more example before I bring it back down home. So we created programs at the federal level that would allow banks to basically get guarantees for mortgage. So let's say I'm a small bank. I issue a 1,000 mortgages in the place, and they're on my balance sheet. I care tremendously about the health and enforcement and the quality of law uh, law enforcement in that place. I don't want any crimes or shenanigans going on because it's going to hurt my balance sheet. But now, if I can issue mortgages and just guarantee them, you know, sell them into Fannie and bring them back on my balance sheet, you know, if the place goes to hell in a handbasket, it's not losing me money, Okay. Or, you know, I'm just selling them into Fannie Mae, so I don't really care. Now, what does that mean? That means you can bring narcotics trafficking and mortgage fraud into a community and rape a place, and the bankers are going to make more money because, one, they're protected on the mortgages, but, two, they're making money on all the activity from the drugs and the money laundering. Okay? So, right. so you create a model where crime pays. Let me try to state it a different way and, and tell me if I'm right or wrong. We essentially created a financial model based on transactions, not on equity and wealth creation at the local level. No, you've, you've created a economy which makes money from centralizing control. The problem is as you centralize control, you suboptimize the total economy. So you use a negative return on investment to the taxpayers to fund a process that centralizes control, but it shrinks the pie. And so government debt continues to go up, up, up. War continues to go up, up, up. The economy continues to centralize and you're shrinking the pie because you, you basically are marginalizing or destroying a great deal of the intellectual and financial capital that is productive. And frankly, you're destroying human productivity. So let me just say one thing. There's a wonderful chart uh, in, I think it's in Fortune magazine, that shows that from 1995, I should, I'm going to send you a copy of this, from 1955 to 1995 when we created the World Trade Organization, the Fortune 500 revenues and the USA GNP sort of tracked together. You know, they basically went up very close alignment. And then suddenly in 1995, until 2015, the Fortune 500 revenues skyrocketed at about 400,000 percent, and and the GNP stayed rising at about two to three percent. 
And what that was was a giant sucking sound engineered very much with government capital and government securities and government enforcement of of the economic flow into large publicly traded corporations. And what happened, one of the things that facilitated that process was that um, political contributions were being engineered from the capital gains, both on the publicly traded companies and the real estate. I should just mention, I did, to help people understand this phenomena, Chuck, I discovered in the, you know, in the 90s, after this was started to take off and the the game was sort of afoot, um, I discovered people really didn't understand the financial engineering that was really, you know, centralizing control in this giant sucking sound neighborhood by neighborhood, county by county. So I wrote a case study called um, Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, and I went through the creation and funding of a private prison company and showed exactly how the financial engineering worked. And it was designed, in fact, for a, a professor who needed literally a case study to show how this worked and how it was destroying the economy because it had such a, you know, a positive return of uh, uh, to the corporations was being engineered at a deeply negative return on investment to the taxpayers. And if you looked at it on an integrated basis, it wasn't economic, but you had to be able to see and look at all the financial engineering. So um, that's up at a URL, dylanreedandco.com. And uh, it's called Dylan Reed and the Aristocracy of Stock Profits. It's in Spanish and French as well as English. And it's a, if you want to understand this phenomena, it's a great just case study. It's felt to me a little bit like mercantilism here in a small town. I looked at one city that I worked with once as an engineer and the major income category that people in the city had was social security. Uh, essentially like government benefits, money flowing in, but all the money flowed right out again. There was no, there was a dollar store and a couple of, you know, national chains. And it seemed to me like all these people existed for in the eyes of, you know, macroeconomists was just to generate a growth number on a, on a GDP chart by generating these transactions. We send them money, they spend it at this place and it gets just sucked right out. If you go through the continuum, which I've done since 1995, if you go the continuum of all the players in the mix, what you will discover is many of the different players in the whole sort of circle of this are chasing fees. Um, and if you go all the way to the very top, what you'll discover is the the people at the very top want to centralize control. Um, and one of the reasons they want to centralize control is they want to compete successfully on the global stage. So if you're competing against China that has 1.3 billion people and India that has 1.2 billion people, you know, and, and you want to compete up against that and win, you want to centralize as much flow into the big players as possible so they can compete successfully in the world stage. That's kind of the theory. Uh, I don't necessarily buy all of it. The problem is that it's a highly uneconomic model and it requires massive government subsidy, much of it invisible and secret. And, you know, that has caused the debt to skyrocket and the model requires more and more force to force everybody to take dollars or treasuries and to use them. And of course, at some point, 
I just think you can't run a whole planet based on force, although <laughs> we seem we seem try. committed to trying. <laughs> right. We're gonna test we're gonna test that theory. Yeah, we're gonna test the limits and, and frankly it you know, a lot of this comes down to uh weaponry and both space weaponry, a lot of invisible weaponry. If you look at the history of the development of, of invisible and, and very powerful wep- weaponry, it's definitely, you know, impressive what has been created if you, if you want to work on a force model. But I think what I would argue is that nothing this uneconomic can last. So I think what, what we all need to do is, you know, at the, at the neighborhood or county level, take a look at the model that's working now and start to grapple with, okay, how can we start incrementally, you know, day by day, week by week, month, month by month, as a practical matter, get this going in a more positive direction? And one of the things we need to grapple with is we need to create a model that provides fees for our friends. You know, their model provides fees for our friends. Our model needs to provide fees for our friends because ultimately we need to empower the most productive players in the local economy. And the way to do that is, you know, to shift the cash flows in their direction. So how can we take the local 401k uh, plans and IRAs and make them eligible to invest in, you know, venture pools or REITs that build up our place? How can we make it possible? You know, right now I can take my entire net worth and spend it on the lottery or go drive a few miles down the road and spend it on illegal narcotics. But if I invest it in um, securities in a local small business, the small business owner and I can go to jail. So, so, so part of this is how do we grapple with the extraordinary complex uh, regulatory structure related to circulation of capital within a place and how do we start getting the intellectual capital and the, and the financial capital, uh, circulating in our place. And I would, the, I think the number one way to start is to say, okay, let's, let's get a group of small business owners. Let's get the local community bank. Let's get the local community college or tech center. Um, maybe the high school principal, you know, people involved with kids, education and business. And let's see if we can't start to create an apprentice program where kids can cycle through the different businesses. And let's see if we can't create a shark tank that over time can start to offer to finance the kids either buying the businesses of people who want to retire or start their own businesses. So let's get in the business of taking the young people and creating opportunity for them on Main Street in a way that gives us a deep bench and reverses this drain of intellectual capital. I think you got to start with the people. Just listening to you describe this, it, it seems to me like there is a tension between, and I've been called naive in this account, but what I see as a kind of a fragile national construct you know, the, the idea that, you know, if we don't have GDP growth in excess of certain amounts, if we don't have inflation at certain rates, that things are going to start to go bad on a macro scale in a way that is just going to wash over everything. So, Chuck, things have already gone bad on a macro scale. 
I feel that too. It, right. It, it seems to me there's a tension though between what the people at the macro level say was, is needed to keep it all going just, just fine. And what is actually good for our neighborhoods and our cities and our families and our small businesses. Okay. So, so let's look at it this way. So let's look at the U.S. budget. If you look at the money coming into the U.S. budget and going into, let's just pick any county. I'll do Hardeman County where I live. You have an enormous number of people in Hardeman County dependent on things working the way they work. So they're getting disability checks. They're getting social security checks. You know, they're getting community block development grants. They're getting HUD vouchers. Um, you know, and they're all living paycheck to paycheck or check to check on that money. You know, if you cut that money, they're scared to death. You're in Tennessee, right? I'm in Tennessee. You don't want to start to me on agriculture in the U.S. budget and how they've destroyed <laughs> agriculture. That's really a good conversation. Anyway, but um, if if you look at all the money, it's got a negative return on investment. Now, you know, let's say that you owned a mutual fund that had a negative return on investment. And so every year it went down in value. And every year your advisor called you and said, look, it went down, so you need to put more money in. <laughs> at some point you'd say – well, wait a minute, let's turn it to a positive because, you know, I need my money to be making money for me, not losing money. You know, the problem is to turn it to a positive, you have to have a serious conversation with everybody about how it's working now and everybody's going to have to change. All the people getting checks, all the people getting fees are going to have to grapple with instead of, you know, getting the kind of money they're getting now, how do I get that money in a way that has a positive return? Okay, so so that's problem number one. Let me describe problem number two. Problem number two is that since fiscal 1998, $18 trillion has disappeared from the U.S. government. This is $18 trillion of what's called undocumentable adjustments, which is an accounting term. You know, and for all you and I know, it could be $2 trillion, it could be $40 trillion. We have no way of knowing. I can assure you that it's, with securities fraud, you can steal $40 trillion. So we know that the U.S. federal accounts are operating significantly outside of the law. And the problem is if you run a negative return on investment system and you run it outside the law, you know, there are no solutions to that problem. In other words, you have to get the finances compliant with the law, which is the Constitution and the financial management laws, and that includes proper disclosure. So that's a, at this point, and this is not including the bailouts, that's even more, but for a family of four, this is $200,000, which has disappeared. Now, I can't, I can't run a healthy county system if every 20 years or every year $10,000 disappears because not only is that, you know, on average in Tennessee, say we're paying $5,000 a year in federal taxes, you know, that's suddenly I'm, I, it's all the money I spent in taxes plus my, my debt liabilities going up by 5,000. So in other words, you, you have a federal financial mechanism that has reached a level of corruption, which is completely, unbearable. Now, you know, the reaction of the Washington establishment is to just double down on on going the way it is. It can't work. 
back to you and me in Hardeman County, what do we do? Really what you need to do is you need to find the 5 to 10% of the people who are willing to look at this and see if you can't bring about incremental change. I go back to the question of who you've got in a local place who's willing to start to say, okay, what's our talent here and what can we do and how can we start to circulate more capital locally and start to build this up and how can we do it in a way that protects us from pressure from the governor's office or, you know, the senator's office to bring in more Dunkin' Donuts? What I call this is we've got to build our own local wealth. Your popsicle index, I think, is so good at this and the description you gave earlier, because I, I feel like what we have done is we have taken a system where quality of life and really our own individual prosperity in a community of people who were becoming more prosperous was reflected in our wealth, the actual, like, you know, our balance sheet. And we've gone into a system now where our balance sheet, or at least the way we're accounting it, is not at all correlated with our quality of life or, or how we're doing better. Well, let me give you, let me give you a couple of metrics. So we've gone from a world of family wealth to corporate wealth. And the reality is families traditionally, particularly within a place, if you, if you go into a place, the thing that makes a place wonderful is usually about 20 families who have taken an enormous leadership role in not only building one or more businesses, but in using a portion of their capital to make sure their kids are raised right, their parents are taken care of, but also invest in the local civic infrastructure. And a lot of them are the ones that finance the new small businesses and circulate capital locally. And so what we want to do is we want to preserve and build up family wealth because family wealth is not about being greedy or making money. It's about making sure your kids have enough money to go to college without getting raped by student loans. It, it's making sure you have enough money so you know, your grandmother has, uh, you know, a decent life, you know, after if she lives beyond the age of 80. It's, it's the money to make sure that our quality of life is there. And that's why I say if you look at the Seattle study, there is a very direct correlation between who has capital and financial resources and life expectancy. You know, if I was going to pick any one number, uh, you know, that you could look at only because the centralizers use it tremendously is life expectancy. So um, I agree. I, this To me, this is not about money, but but whether it's intellectual wealth or financial wealth, ultimately the source of all financial wealth is either natural resources or, you know, human Capacity. Unfortunately, the centralizers are looking increasingly at humans as though they're natural resources, which they're not. But, um, you know, there is a balance between living equity or human equity and, and financial equity. And ultimately, when you look at how quality of life or wealth works, they're one thing. Now, we we grown up in an educational system and economy that tries to separate them out, which, of course, if you're a centralizer and you want to harvest <laughs> people like their natural resources, you try and keep it disassociated. You know, our job is to integrate it and keep it deeply associated, at which point there's absolutely a balance. So, you know, all financial wealth is going to within a place is going to come 
that the key driver of financial wealth and family wealth within a place is going to be intellectual capital. So one of the things I rail about is diet nutrition, because if you look at the diet nutrition of, of the U.S. population, you know, you take one look at what we're eating. There's no way we're ever going to be prosperous. <laughs> yes. It's impossible. Yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. Yes. But it's very, but it's right. very efficient. Well, it's very efficient for, you know, that 4,000% right. increase in, in corporate wealth. But I come back to, you know, taking responsibility here because if you look at the amount of money we're spending on hard narcotics, if you look at hard narcotic sales in many counties, a lot of that is just a low cost replacement of painkillers that you can't get from you know, the pharmaceuticals are too expensive. But it's, so if we'll deduct that out, if we look at hard narcotics trafficking, an excess of alcohol, uh, an excess of tobacco, and um, how much time and money we spend watching TV or entertainment, and also on the lottery, we have within our own command from those sources enough money to really start to circulate and build up the local businesses and the local civic institutions and make things work again. And, and the beauty of doing that, the, one of the reasons I so appreciate your work, the beauty of doing things is when you use that private local capital to circulate and build, what you get is you get the right balance between investment and private activity. You don't invest way beyond what the private activity can justify in terms of income and maintenance. I feel like I'm viewing a different world sometimes because I look at these distortions here and, and I'm like, how, how can you have this strip mall, for example, be vacant for 10 years? It, it, like it makes, it makes no sense. Yet they're building another one a quarter mile up the road. Like how, how in any functioning world does that happen? It only happens when the people making the decisions have no clue about the local ecosystem. Well, but here's the thing. If you, if you can create. I come back to an equity system and I just have to say, you know, when I was building Hamilton Securities, I tried to make this my business. It's not my business to do this anymore. So I'm sharing ideas. If you want to do a local venture fund in your neighborhood, you know, we've got lots of material and ideas on how you might do that, but you're going to have to figure it out. You've got to build alignment locally between you know, the providers and users of intellectual equity and financial equity. And so you've got to build an incentive system. You know, it's really funny because when I was at the top of Wall Street or Washington, when people wanted to engineer something, they didn't engineer it. They said, okay, how can we engineer the financial incentive so everybody makes money, you know, going, we want everybody to go to Rome, we'll just financially engineer it so everybody makes money going to Rome. It's the same thing with how we do the local economy. And let me explain the beauty of this. Let's go back and say we, you know, we've created our local venture fund where the stock is trading among the members. We've got a membership exchange. It's trading among the members at $10. We're in negotiation with the state and local pension funds to bring in money. You know, they're interested in playing. Um, and we've got it liquid to the point where they can, you know, an institution might be interested in investment. You know, things are really going. Now, there is a theory in the world that you need consumption to keep the economy going. But in fact, 
if we do things that improve our local economy and make people better off that reduce consumption, our stock goes up. And now people can make money on reducing the cost of energy, reducing the use of fossil fuel, reducing consumption. So reducing consumption can make money and making things environmentally healthy can make capital gains. It's back to, we've created a model where, you know, the, the people who invest in the Dow Jones index can increase the value of their stock by doing things that cause the popsicle index to go up. One of the things that most irritates me about America is I think teachers are seriously underpaid. What's interesting is if 3,100 counties, you know, financed with, with local place-based equity, what you would discover is the way you could get, you know, your local equity to go up is by getting the best teachers. So <laughs> in one of our first prototypes, we had, uh, a stock option plan and the governance board could allocate options to the teachers to buy them away from the next county. <laughs> yeah. I- imagine there was a competitive marketplace for the best teachers. Yeah. Right. No, I totally right. Right. Yeah. That would be incredible. Right. And the pressure would be on to have the education be wonderful. I want to ask you a couple of questions about housing. I want to start with a, a story again and have you react to it and, and tell me what I'm missing. After 2008, we had a bunch of houses here that, that went into foreclosure. And we also had a lot of unemployed people. And we also had a lot of people who needed housing. And so I, I looked at this and much like other people around the country, I was a little bit bewildered about, well, why doesn't one of these people who, you know, now, uh, is an unemployed, uh, former carpenter or whatever, who was working for a, a big company, but got laid off because they're not building tract houses anymore. Why doesn't that person wind up with one of these houses and then, you know, converts it into a duplex and sells it or, or, or rents it out? Like why, why, why is that kind of thing not happening? And then conversely, why are these kind of nameless, faceless entities from outside the community buying all these up with cash? Essentially, we have, you know, unoccupied houses sitting here. Uh, with people who need housing and people who need jobs. Like what, what's broken here? Because the, the housing policy was designed. Remember, I was the lead financial or my company was the lead financial advisor when the engineering of the housing bubble began. And the housing bubble was engineered top down. So it took many years and, and many complex regulatory and administrative changes in the government to engineer it. The large banks knew exactly what they were doing. So, so this was a highly engineered, and let me just give you an example. I, in, I think it was 1994, uh, FHA was working on its plan, its long-term strategic plan, and FHA had traditionally been the, the provider of, of mortgage insurance credit in the low-income neighborhoods. And at the same time, they were promulgating affordable housing regulations for Fannie Mae. And when the Fannie Mae rules were promulgated, I looked at the volumes and I was shocked because what they were saying was, I mean, literally, you were going to have to issue more mortgages in low-income neighborhoods than there were houses. People were going to have to be refinancing mortgages from prison, you know, two or three times a year to make the numbers. And it it was impossible. And I, I 
went to a very senior official at FHA and I said, I said, look, this is not possible because we were working on Community Wizard and doing the place-based data. And I said, you can't, you can't issue more mortgages in a neighborhood than there are people or houses. And she looked at me and said, shut up. This is none of your business. Yeah. Oh, you just, just watch us do it. <laughs> well, right. So this was the creation of a large foreclosed housing pool was planned. And it was also planned that you would have large investment entities pick this up and aggregate. So between 2008 and today, if you look at the top 100 landowners in America, their holdings have doubled on average. But the plan was to centralize control of land and real estate in, in places. And it was a plan. So a lot of those properties were picked up by, by investment entities, which were planning on doing basically, you know, what investors want, which is income, income producing investments that would give investors a steady income. And of course, they would make a lot of money and own the equity. This feels like, again, one of these things where it might be really good if you're sitting at the Federal Reserve Bank reading GDP statistics, or if you're, you know, running for Congress or president and you want to be able to tout uh, some top line numbers. But this seems really at odds with what is the, in the best interests of the popsicle index of, of, of our local communities and their strength and, and resiliency. Here's the question. Let's say we take the top 1%. Are we going to run the economy to maximize their ownership and control? Yes. Or are we going to run the, <laughs> the economy according to the Constitution? And the problem is if you look at what they're doing to centralize, most of it is outside of – it's one, it's outside of the law, or some of their tactics are outside of the law – Two, it's destroying productivity. Productivity right now in the United States is falling. This is probably, from the point of view of the top people or the pension funds, this is the most serious problem. We, we, you know, we've played this game of centralization in a way that is now wrecking long-term productivity and trust in the economy. So it's outside the law. It's wrecking productivity. And it's dirty little secrets. It it's, depends on a negative return on investment on the on the government money, and we've plugged that with just printing liberally, uh, you know, currency and running up the debt. You know, how much further can you play that game? I've listened to people who said indefinitely. I don't think that's true, but why would someone suggest that? Well, you can do it indefinitely if your weaponry is sufficient and your teamwork is sufficient. So if you're willing to depopulate uh, globally sufficiently to do that, in theory, you can. Now, I just, if you look at my understanding of reality and everything I've seen, I don't think it'll work. But, you know, in theory, if if you could have superb teamwork and the weaponry was there, you could do it. Let me ask you one more question on housing. It's current to our, our time uh, we just got done with Hurricane Harvey. As you and I are recording this, we're hours away from Hurricane. It's Irma, right? Is the next one coming right. in Florida? Right. right. Let's forget about federal flood insurance, which I think is a, a just a crazy concept in and of itself, the way it's done. How can you 
buy a house in a floodplain and not have the holder of that mortgage demand that you be insured against floods. How does that even happen in our system? Um, because if basically if the institution or if you have insurance, the insurer doesn't require it, then it's a no brainer. Okay. Let me, let me give you two scenarios. Let's say you're the local bank and you're holding on to this thing. And, you know, local banks don't hold 30-year paper, but let's say you've got a seven-year balloon. Aren't they going to hedge their bets by requiring flood insurance if you're a local bank? I mean, could you take that much risk uh, without it? Well, if you're a local bank and there's real risk of floods, you're going to want flood insurance if it's on your balance sheet. But again, if it's being pumped into through the federal credit system, through Freddie Fannie, and they don't require it, you don't care, and you're not going to require it. So if you're the local bank and you're not planning to hold the mortgage more than 30 days while you sell it off to Fannie or Freddie or whoever, it doesn't matter to you. Like it's not something that's going to ping. You you just want to get the transaction for selling it. Okay. Let me ask you this then. If I'm the, the pension fund who's bought a bunch of mortgage-backed securities and I, I look now today and I realize a huge portion of my portfolio is underwater in Houston, Texas, do I care? I mean, does that bother me in any way? It seems to me like there's a strategy here. If I'm in Houston and I have a huge mortgage and I'm literally underwater as well as being financially underwater now, why am I, why am I, why don't I walk away from that? Um, is Texas an anti-deficiency? I don't know. State? I don't know. Forgive Good question. me. I should know, but I don't, I don't remember offhand. But um, the reality, as long as you're not in danger of a deficiency judgment, you probably will walk away. Depends. Here's where the system has really fallen down. In 1997, I was, I made a presentation. I had a subsidiary of, of Hamilton Securities had a relationship. Uh, we had a contract with the Department of Justice, and we were trying to work with pension fund leaders to see how we couldn't turn the existing situation around, all the things you and I are talking about now. One of our goals was to ensure that the pension funds made their target investment rates so that the boomer retirement was taken care of. So their big question was, we have this big bulge of people moving through the system. How do we make sure the, you know, we, we can achieve their targeted, you know, their targeted retirement goals? So a wonderful group of pension fund leaders. And I made a presentation about how we could take all the federal money going into Philadelphia and return, uh, turn it from a negative return on investment to a positive and do it in a way where, uh, with a place-based equity, the pension funds could make huge and hideous profits and thus be able to fund boomer retirements. And one of the people on the board was the president of CalPERS. So CalPERS is the largest pension fund in the country, the California Public Pension Fund. So so the president of CalPERS looked at me and he said, you don't understand. He got all excited. He said, oh, my God, this could really work. And then he, he froze and he said, you don't understand. It's too late. They've given up on the country. They're moving all the money out starting in the fall. And that was the fall of 1997, which is the beginning of fiscal 1998, when all the $18 trillion started missing from the federal government. And now, here's what you need to understand. After that meeting, CalPERS proceeded. You know, of course, we know 
They didn't re-engineer the government money. Instead, we had a huge housing bubble that generated a huge amount of capital that could then be moved and globalized and a whole bunch of other things. But here's the thing. CalPERS then proceeded to buy and then subsequently lose a huge amount of money on basically mortgage fraud. So, but they knew. They knew. Now, that is in complete violation of the law and fiduciary obligation. And what I learned from that one example, that one event, was that literally you had a centralized governance that could tell a public pension fund, it could order a public pension fund to basically buy hundreds of billions of dollars of paper that 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 organization knew there was something wrong. You know, I come back to governance structure. We have a governance structure which is invisible, it's secret, it's massively misallocating capital from any standpoint of productivity or efficiency, as you and I would define it. And, you know, it seems to be able to get a wide number of players, you know, throughout the capital allocation process in state and local government to behave in ways which are, you know, not only unlawful, but economically irrational. And the question is, what do we do? I I don't know if you read the book, uh, The Big Short. The movie didn't really do justice, I think, to this particular scene, although it tried to. There's that scene when they're in Vegas and they sit uh, the guys down with the pension fund guy. The guy running the pension funds says, you know, I don't care. I'll buy every mortgage-backed security you guys issue. I'll buy every year's insurance contract you issue. The guy stands up and says, whatever that guy owns, I want the opposite bet on. I think the the power of that scene was that here was a person who was running hundreds of billions, I mean, people's future, people's retirement. And the incentives that this person had had nothing to do with how good the stuff or the quality of what they were purchasing. It was very, very short term. I can't help but react to that by thinking that the centralization is like the core problem. Well, I would say this. I would say the governance structure is the core problem. We are being governed by a system which is secret and invisible. And it is centralizing and it is using centralization. It is doing that centralization, among other things, by running the federal government outside the law. So in 2001, I went to speak with the chief of staff to the chairman of the Senate Appropriation Committee that appropriates the subcommittee that appropriates for HUD. And uh, I was a person I had never met before. So I was being sort of trying to be discreet. And they said to me, uh, what do you think is going on at HUD? And I said, I don't know. What do you think is going on at HUD? And they looked me dead in the eye and they said, HUD is being run as a criminal enterprise. And I said, you know, I don't disagree because, in fact, HUD was being run as a criminal enterprise at the time. And uh, sorry, it was in 2000. It wasn't 2001. It was being run as a criminal enterprise at the time. And But here's what you need to know. HUD is run on a matrix structure. The New York Fed depository banks control the bank accounts along with the Department of Treasury. 
And then the Department of Justice is very controlling and instrumental. And, of course, the intelligence agencies, unfortunately, are in there, too. And so you can't run HUD as a criminal enterprise unless all the and the big defense contractors who run the information and payment system. So you can't run HUD as a criminal enterprise unless all those groups are doing so, which means, you know, the whole U.S. government is being run as a criminal enterprise. So, you know, it's a big place. It's a complex place. I'm not I'm not trying to impugn anyone. But here's the big problem I have in trying to do anything locally, whether in my neighborhood or your neighborhood. You know, it's easier in wealthy neighborhoods than in poor neighborhoods. But the management, every neighborhood is producing, is being drained financially to produce wealth for this system. You know, the system that's centralizing. And the reality is, uh, if, if I get 20 soccer moms together and we try and back hard narcotics trafficking out of the neighborhood, you know, that hiccups the cash flows of the central machinery. And the next thing we discover is, you know, the drugs are financing Tony Soprano, who's financing James Bond, and we've got black helicopters coming down on our heads. And so, in a model that this is centralized, this centralized, you know, nobody can be an exception. And, you know, we're up against centralized forces. And so the question politically is, how do you organize, you know, 3,100 counties at a local level to say, wait a minute, you know, we've lost our local power, we need to get it back. So this is a power equation between local communities trying to run things productively and you know, an invisible governance system. I think that's why people call it the deep state or, you know, there are various names for it. And a lot of us would just like to say, look, I want to make my neighborhood wonderful. I don't want to get into all of that. (laughs) And the problem is, if there is an invisible tithe going from our neighborhood up to that governance structure, you know, think of this as invisible tax, and every one of us are paying that tax, and and the payment of that tax requires that we run things in a way which to us looks intuitively irrational you know how do we how do we deal with that now what i'll just have to say is you know there are lots of ways of dealing with it but i used to i had a great pastor in washington who was fabulous he used to say if we can face it god can fix it <laughs> but the first thing we need to do is we need to face what's happening and we need to face our complicity because the reality is, you know, we've been in the central banking warfare model is what I call it for 500 years. And most people in America, Chuck, are beneficiaries of the model. Right. And I've told you the red button story, right? No, I don't think so. Do I have time for another story? Sure. (laughs) Sure. This is my favorite story. Never have an epiphany in the middle of a speech. Um, (laughs) So I was speaking, I've been invited by a wonderful healthcare practitioner to speak to a group that she's in called Spiritual Frontiers Foundation International. And they have a conference once a year to talk about how we can evolve our society spiritually. A wonderful group of people, very serious, very responsible pretty financially secure. They're hardworking people who take care of business. Anyway, so there I am in Philadelphia giving a speech and I'm in the middle of a speech and I've been asked to speak on how the money works on organized crime. And it's really sort of a light, funny description of the intersection between illegal cash flows and Wall Street and Washington because they were trying to understand the corruption. So 
I'm in the middle of the speech and I'm talking about working for a reporter who was interviewing a spokesperson from the Department of Justice during the congressional testimony on the Dark Alliance allegations, which was narcotics trafficking by the U.S. intelligence agencies into South Central L.A. It was the crack cocaine epidemic. So the Department of Justice spokesperson tells the reporter that the U.S. economy launders $500 billion to a trillion dollars a year of all illegal cash flows. So that's narcotics trafficking, that's illegal gambling, that's sex slavery, that's everything. So I said to this wonderful group of a 100 spiritually evolved people, what would happen if we stopped? What if we just said, you know, we're not going to do that anymore, we're going to be good Christians, and we're, we're not going to, you know, good spiritually evolved people, we're not going to, we're, we're basically going to not do that. What would happen? And they said, well, you know, we'd have a problem because all that accumulated capital would leave the New York Stock Exchange and go to Zurich or Hong Kong. And, you know, they might not want to refinance the government debt. So we might have a problem with the government budget. I said, okay, well, let's pretend there's a big red button up here on the lectern. And if you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in your town, your county, your, your state, your country tomorrow, thus offending those people who here will push the button. And out of a hundred people, uh, dedicated to evolving our society spiritually, only one would push the button. And I said, why would you not push the button? And they said, we don't want our government checks to stop. We don't want our taxes to go up. And we don't want, you know, we don't want our 401ks and IRAs to go down. So here's the problem. Let's say against your, you know, your better judgment, we make you president next year. Your political guy is going to walk into the office and say, the American people just spent, you know, one to $2 billion to get you elected. They all want their government check. You know, they want their money. So you're going to turn to your secretary of treasury and he's going to say, well, you better be nice to the people who control what was in 1988, 98, 500 billion to a trillion dollars of all illegal money. And now it's much bigger. And so if the American people won't push the red button, how are you supposed to push the red button? Because for you to make radical change, you need 80% or more consensus in the general population. And you've only got 1% behind you. So what the American people are basically saying to you is, you know, we want our check and we want you to pretend you want, we want you to give us a story that allows us to feel good about ourselves. We're good Christians and we're not doing all of this crazy stuff to get the money. It seems like there's a, there's an end story there that doesn't bode well. The end story is that if you keep playing the red button, you're going to keep shrinking productivity and shrinking the pie and shrinking the economy. So think of it as if I'm taking drugs, I'm slowly destroying my body. Well, it's the same thing with financial addiction to narcotics money or criminal enterprise. We're doing something that is financially not sustainable, and we're liquidating our intellectual capital. We're liquidating our economy. We're liquidating our human civilization. So it doesn't make us healthier. And what what the problem was – not that nobody wanted to deal with it, because what people were saying is my fiduciary obligation is to my family, my business, my, you know, and, and if I try and do this big over, overwhelming thing, you know, I, I won't be effective. And so I'm not going to deal with it. The problem was not that they would not push the red button. The problem was that they wouldn't start talking about what is happening and saying, okay, how can we make money pushing the red button? I call it turning the red button green. How can we make money pushing the red button? How can we generate fees for our friends 
pushing the red button, because then we will push the red button. And in fact, pushing it in an effective, productive way will turn this around and make the economy start growing healthy again. Catherine Austin Fitz, president of Solari Inc. I'm going to give people the website here now, but I'm also going to put it on our on our site when we post this. It's solari.com, S-O-L-A-R-I. Catherine, it's fun to talk to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Let's keep in touch and do this again sometime. So can I just say one thing? Please, absolutely. Before I close, I really want to stress that in 20 years of dealing with this issue, I've never seen anyone do a better job of going at the heart of the matter and turning it around than you and what you're doing in Strong Towns. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. If there's anything I and the Solari Network can ever do to support you, you know, we stand ready to do it. And I just want to say to everybody listening to your material, you're listening to the right person. You're supporting the right organization. Keep doing it. Thank you. That that means so much. You know, I, I'm sure you feel this too. There, there's times when you kind of feel like a, a crazy voice in the wilderness. So to have someone say that is means a lot. Thank you very much. Okay, well, God bless. You too. You take care. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.